O Father, no condemnation now I dread, for Jesus has saved us from ourselves, from the penalty and pains of perdition unto everlasting life. We praise you now and forever in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Any suggestions this morning? I'm taking requests as long as you want to hear from Romans chapter 8. So turn to Romans chapter 8 this morning. And uh, I'll read verses 31 through 39. Bring us back into the context of the, of the apostles' thinking. And so Paul writes to the first century church of Rome, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who's even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation? or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. O Father, we pray that your word would admit to us this great, unimpeachable assurance. Let us be as persuaded as your beloved apostle this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we have Paul teaching the doctrines of the church to a church that learned from someone other than him. And so he's writing this great treatise to the Roman church to make sure they have right thinking in their new walk with Christ. It is so easy to walk away, to veer away from the truth in so many different areas If you go through the New Testament, you'll find it replete with warnings against falsehood and false teachers and savage wolves coming in and not sparing the flock and any manner of such thing. And so Paul talks about it, James talks about it, Peter warns against it. So it's the apostles' primary ministry to make certain that the people of God know the truths of God as they are given to us in the inspired word. And so he teaches us of the gospel, of what Christ bought us at the cross. But then for the second half of the epistle, he teaches us to be assured of these things, to have no doubt. And so he gives us argument after argument showing that nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. These are the great assurance passages of the Bible. And so he writes, 
rhetorically, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, as I said, keep in mind as we journey through the book of Romans, that's what's being said is an extension of what has been said. So I take a moment now and then to bring us back in a little moment of review about the places we've traveled in our study of Romans. It's always Paul's method of making his argument. Each verse is not a new beginning. It's an extension of the original premise, which goes all the way back to chapter 1, where it says the power of God unto salvation. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. And notice he quotes the Old Testament. In other words, the gospel, the saving faith, justification by faith has always been the way God saves his people. So Paul makes this astounding gospel claim in chapter 1. And he works out the details of the, prophet, of the process by which God saves us throughout the balance of his epistle. He goes further in chapter 1 to declare that the world lies perpetually in a state of displeasement to God. Very famously, he writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so he tells us, the state of the world that we're in. Now, we could say, well, maybe he means that uh, in, a, in a first century context. Or maybe it's a prophecy pointing to our time. But given as it's a quotation from the psalmist in Psalm 53, a thousand years before this, I will say to you that this is the perpetual state of man. We always are living under the wrath of God to some extent or another. And it's only the gospel that separates us from perdition. It's only the blood of Christ. And so he speaks of God withdrawing from human society. Remember that? And to a large extent, the Almighty takes with him the basic ingredients of his common grace. Due to the sins of human society, God is said to give them up to themselves. That's the curse. When we give God up for long enough, his long suffering has come to an end and he gives them up to themselves. Direct quotations from Paul in chapter 1. He gave them up to uncleanness, verse 24. He gave them up to vile passions. If you're going to express yourself in vile passions, then you'll live in vile passions. I'll give you up to them. Verse 26. Verse 28, he gave them over to a debased mind. They are unable to think properly anymore, to rationalize correctly anymore, and certainly not morally. Professing to be wise, they became fools and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen, he said. And so that's the condition we find ourselves in. So what do we do? Well, I I would think that man would rationalize, all right, if there is a God who loves us and told us, gave us the law and taught us how to live, and we went away from the law, 
and we traversed away from righteousness in Christ, what's left for us to do? Get back to righteousness. But then he tells us it's a futile attempt. There's no way back. And he gives this famous diatribe of man in his natural state in chapter 1 where he says there is none righteous. In other words, nobody's equipped for true repentance. He says, no, not one. He drives it home. There's none who understand. Friends, we've been given over to a debased mind. How can we understand the pure, inspirational, revelational knowledge of God? We don't have the equipment in our natural state. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. Again, appealing to an ancient scripture, a psalm. Now, the next few chapters show us how God in his great mercy, which is the product of his undying love for his own evil, helpless, impotent creatures... He loves us, though he calls us evil, helpless, impotent creatures. He will work out a plan to still to save us from our sins. This is the amazing thing of the gospel. His amazing love, his amazing grace that we sing about and sang about this morning. We see that we are undeserving. We are unlovable, yet he loves us. And we don't know why except He tells us that somewhere in eternity past, he created us for fellowship with him. And he loved us even then. I do want to tell you, I talked last week on some of these verses about what extent God went to to make us right before him, even to the delivering up of his own son, even to the killing, the injuring. It pleased the Lord to bruise him, Isaiah said. He went this far. I want to tell you, it was so moving, I never saw such an outcry in the church before. I literally had grown men in tears. We had people of age who'd been around for a long time coming up to me and saying, no one ever told me he loved me that much. I got text after text this week overflowing with gratitude to God and to me for telling them what it said. I don't write this stuff. I always tell you. I just repeat it. He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That's the message. God's undying love, even though we didn't deserve it. And so he worked out a plan to save us from our sins because of this love. He'll pay for the sins of those whom he affectionately refers to as the elect, That's your nickname, elect. You're the elect of God. He speaks of the impotence, the inability of the law to save them. It's a good law in that it's a righteous standard. It's a road sign to glory. It's a pointer to heaven. But it was a cruel master because it gave us no power to obey the law. It was the standard and all it could do is condemn. It had no power to save And so Paul declares with power and passion that the only hope for man to be made right before God must come from God himself. Man could not save himself. That's the whole teaching of the first seven chapters. Man could not save himself. 
If he's to be saved, it must be solely by the power of God. Not only can't we save ourselves, we have nothing to contribute to that effort. If man is to be reconciled to this God of wrath, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, if we're to be delivered from this wrath, and wrath is anger, the word is thumos, like heat, right? The heat, the anger, the displeasure of God. If we're to be delivered from that and we have no power within ourselves to help ourselves in that effort, the entire work has to come from God on high. That's the gospel. That's what this apostle is striving for us to recognize. If man is to be reconciled to this God of wrath, if he is to be justified before his creator then he has to partake of the grace and essential goodness of that creator. And God himself has to make the way for that to happen. He has to provide the access into grace again. And so for several chapters, Paul delineates the process and the power of divine initiative to save. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then the apostle gets joyful. And he declares something further. But now, he writes, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the secrets of these deep things of God were known anciently. There's nothing new here, but it's being more newly and more vibrantly displayed and revealed. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. There's your access. Faith gives access. Faith comes from God. It's a gift and it gives us access into his presence and into his grace. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. And so he goes on. Jesus Christ whom God set forth as a propitiation. Do you know that word? That's a Christian word. No one uses that but us. Propitiation. It's an appeasement. It has to do with atonement. He appeased God by his blood, which really means by his death on the cross. By his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because of his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. There's the gospel. The world suffers under the wrath of God, but there is this one hope, and it is only one, and it is the cross of Christ. And so he points us to that place to that hill on Calvary. And because it's God who saves, and because it's God who bled for the sins of man, because it is he who had the sole power to justify man by faith, the faithful may rest with assurance that the law that condemns them no longer has any power over them. You are delivered from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? The curse of the law is it sets something glorious before you that you have no power to attain. 
It's like playing with a cat on a string almost, which I always enjoyed. It's God who saves because it's God who bled. And that's the way back. And so Paul shifts from the fact of gospel power to the unpeachable assurance of gospel power. He shifts. And he offers this thunderbolt that we sang this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Friends, whenever you're confronted, this verse, I have a very personal relationship with this verse. I was facing death, and I was alone, and I was frightened, but only for a moment, because I knew where to go. There is therefore now no condemnation. I may leave this life, but I know where I'm going and who paved the way. There is no condemnation for him that is in Christ Jesus. That brought us up to last week. We read that the Father's pulling out all stops to cover the sins of fallen humanity. He's given it his best. Remember the diamond? Do you remember the diamond? Don't ever forget the diamond. He'll offer the best he has. He'll give his son. And he foreshadowed this anciently in the scene on Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, he gave us his best. Why wouldn't he give us everything else? Any father would do that if he had already given his best. The apostle argues for assurance after assurance for how can the Almighty fail in his efforts to save? How can God fail in his efforts to save? He cannot fail. He says any other created thing. What does that mean? Anything but me. God's the only uncreated thing. Everything else is created. The angels are created. Right? The Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are not created. They're from eternity past. Oh, pastor, explain that to us. I, I can't. I can't mansplain my way into that one. That's beyond us. There is still mystery in our faith. Don't be jostled by mystery. Accept it. You don't want a God that you can put in a thimble and understand, an outline. You want a God that's beyond imagination, and that's the God that we have. How can the Almighty fail in his efforts to save friends he can't? The apostle may boast on behalf of his sovereign deity, and he can say this, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What thing are you suffering right now? Don't give it any more power than it has. It will work together for good finally for you in some way or another. The apostle does not leave us with the barest peak into the divine heart. Rather, he gives us the greater glimpse of glory. It was all pre-planned in eternity. I want that to settle in. I know we have trouble with that in the churches today. It was all pre-planned. You are here this morning honoring God, listening to his word proclaimed because he decided you should be here before the foundation of the world. 
So he doesn't give us this bare little peek into the divine heart. He gives us this great glimpse of glory. It was all pre-planned, friends, in eternity past. It was all decided upon before suffering set in in the earth. It was all decided who would be saved. It was decided who would believe. It was decided who would become these lovers of God. All things work together for good for those who love God. Not for everybody. Some people don't love him. It was already decided that you would love God. Why? Because he loved you and his grace is irresistible. And I'm going to drive that this morning. And those who are saved are sealed. The seal, like on the bag, you're in there. Nothing's getting in to take you out. And so he writes this. Here's the, here's the sealing passage. For whom he foreknew, he also, be, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, he was resurrected, but it was planned that he would just be the firstborn of all those who would be resurrected from the dead. Let chapter 8 rescue you in your dark moment as it did me and so many others. Certainly John Wesley, or Charles Wesley, who wrote the hymn. And then he writes, moreover. In other words, there's more. Whom he predestined, he called. Remember the illustration, they're up in the front office, they're deciding to promote you to eternal life. And like, oh yeah, maybe we should tell him. So at some point in your life, you got the call, and the call was the gospel. And it was in the heart of some preacher or some friend or some place where you read it and you were called by it. You know, St. Augustine in the 5th century has a story. He he wrote a biography of himself called Confessions. It reads like a modern-day college kid pledging a frat or something, really. But he, his mother was, uh, was a believer. Monica was his mother. His father was... I believe Patricius was his father's name, and he was, he was not a believer. But Monica prayed for her son, and he did all these, you know, he fornicated. He had women and drink and revelry, and he couldn't find rest in anything. But he had this great mind, and he began to study. And even study all the wisdom of the ancients couldn't give him that peace in his heart. And one day he was in a courtyard. He wasn't poor. He lived in Carthage, a great city of the Roman Empire. And he was, he was in Carthage. And he was in a, a latticed terrace. And on the other side of the hedge, he heard a child singing. Have you heard this? And the child sang, pick it up and read. And he, that was part of the song that the child was singing. And he felt in his heart it was the Spirit of God leading him to pick up the scriptures that were next to him. He picked it up and he turned to Romans 1 and he read that the just are saved by faith. And it went into his heart at that moment. He was already predestined, but that was the call. And the call was the voice of a child who didn't even know he or she was calling this great man, this great Christian leader into the faith. Now, there are two details this morning with regard to our understanding of the apostles' claims that are of utmost importance. One is that we're saved by God. 
we're saved through faith, but it's not faith that saves, friends. It's God that saves. God saved us. You didn't save yourself. You know why you didn't? Because you couldn't. And you know why you couldn't? You didn't want to. You had no desire for God. There's none who seeks after God. No, not one. Many who pretend a holy search. Faith is a gift of God, yet it is God through the spent blood of Christ that assures our salvation. Every aspect of the gospel that leads to the death and resurrection of Christ is orchestrated from above. God did not spare his own son. Yes, the Roman spears and the hatred of Jewish priests were the instruments that led him to the cross. But God's plan was the impetus. It was all orchestrated from above. And that, it seems to me, is the first and most important consideration in our receiving a complete understanding of the saving aspect of the gospel of Christ. Keep Paul's simple progression in mind. The gospel is the calling. Our salvation comes by hearing. But the calling only goes to those who are predestined. The call goes out. Everyone Here's the call, but the effectual call, the one that matters, only goes to the ones that are predestined. Again, the church despises this doctrine, it seems to me. It's so plain and it's so logical. But the calling goes out to those who were predestined. The work was done in the counsel of God and finished according to his good pleasure. The calling came after the privilege was already confirmed. The only one in the heavenlies that didn't know you were going to be saved on that day was you. A second point is that we must always see ourselves not simply as believers, friends, not simply as Christians, not only corporately as the church, though we are certainly all of those things, but rather we must see ourselves as God's elect. He chose. So long as we remain steadfast in the understanding that we belong to God, we will be able to avail ourselves of all of these wonderful assurances that Paul is heralding to us here. We'll be certain that we'll persevere, we'll endure to the end. It is guaranteed because we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's Paul's intention that the elect remember a few things. And he wrote this famously to the church of Ephesus. But some of, some of us believe that was an encyclical letter, and it went out to all the churches. Ro the Romans could have known this as well. But to the Ephesians, he wrote, He, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This doctrine isn't hidden away in some little esoteric corner of the scripture. It's heralded all throughout. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. Because we were so lovely? No. Because we were so good and we promised to be nice? No. Because it pleased him to do so according to the good pleasure of his will. 
We were predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. It's his way or the highway. In him you also trusted after you heard your calling. The word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance. It is not by works of righteousness that we have done. But according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So what shall we say then to these things? Let's say it's the Father elects. The Son redeems and the Holy Spirit seals it. It's the intra-Trinitarian cooperation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that guarantees that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the essence of the standing that we have as the elect of God. The word is eklektos. And it's literally ek, which means from, and lego, which is not a building block. Lego means to gather, to gather from. Literally, from the lexicon, it signifies picked out and chosen. That's what elect means. It doesn't mean voted for. It doesn't mean, oh, God voted for you, the devil voted against you, and you hold the deciding vote. You know, we are way too enamored with democracy. We're, democracy is a thing for now, friends, and maybe it's a good thing. I think the jury's out, to be honest with you. But we're going to a kingdom. We don't vote on anything in the kingdom. The king decides everything. That's the whole point of a kingdom, right? The king says that it has to be done. So ek, from, and lego, to gather, signifies picked out or chosen. The word is used of Christ. He's the elect son. 1 Peter 2.6. It's used of angels in 1 Timothy 5.21. There are elect angels, and there are fallen angels. It's used of men in 1 Peter 1.2, in Matthew 24.31, and here in Romans 8.33. It's not a new word. It's not even just a Pauline word. Apart from our seeing ourselves as the elect of God, Paul's intention of a parting assurance of salvation is irreparably hindered. If we don't see ourselves as elect, we can't really have the assurance that God intends for us to have. We should be bold in believing where we're going and who owns us. The doctrine of assurance, which includes the very famous perseverance of the saints, is intellectually untenable if we're saved by our own lucky meandering into grace. Oh, just by chance, I meandered into grace and got myself saved. Hallelujah. Friends, we're the elect. Picked out of. That's our God-given name. That's our God-given station. As long as we remain cognizant of our position, we may attain the full assurance of our ultimate salvation. As I said, elect isn't Paul's term. Matthew uses it. Peter uses it. Others use it. It's a biblical reference to the church, to the saints of God. Peter addresses his first epistle to the pilgrims of the dispersion, the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's how he addresses his letter. It's letters to the elect. If you're not elect, it's not to you. 
And not only are they elect, they are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. Because they're sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're not only brought in by God, you're kept in by God. You can't escape. But once in, you really don't want to. Matthew uses this as a term of endearment. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from one end of heaven to the other. Look out, here comes the angel to get you and bring you to Christ. They're coming from every direction. We can't be lost. Friends, the Arminian fallacy leaves us as the agent of our own salvation. How assured can you be of that? It's our choice, our decision under that theory, and that's the final arbiter of faith. It renders the call of God resistible. The call of God is resistible. You can get the actual call from God to be, to be one of his elect, I suppose, is the theory, and you could say, no, thank you. I prefer to remain as I am. I'm going to show you through Scripture that that's not possible. That would render the call resistible. It would render the atonement a scattershot hope for acceptance. Jesus died on the cross just hoping someone would make a decision for him. Spilled all that blood for hope. It leaves our perseverance dependent upon a long and arduous journey littered with fear and doubt and confusion. Hardly the picture of Paul's polemic that the elect are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's not he loves me. He loves me not. That's not how we go through our Christian lives if we understand this apostle's teaching this morning. And so as long as they remain the fickle playthings, of the world and the flesh and the devil and their circumstances. Though their salvation is as secure as any Calvinist, you know that. You don't have to believe all this to be saved. You just have to receive Christ. But how do you live triumphantly without that assurance? They're as saved as you are. But sadly, they can't be as assured as you are. Because I can choose a thing one day and unchoose it the next. Can I? But God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Numbers 23, 19. The testaments of God, old and new, are filled with those unwitting recipients of grace who tried to resist the appointment of God. Have you ever thought of those? Some of them tried. Time would fail me to speak of Adam. Friends, Adam didn't create himself. God created him from the dust. If I was going to create myself, I think I'd choose something a little more glorious than dust. How about that? Noah did not conceive a plan to wash the world clean of sinful men and bring the rains. God did it. Abraham didn't call himself out of Ur of the Chaldees. God called him out. Lot did not surgically remove himself from Sodom, the only escapee. God surgically removed Lot from Sodom as it burned. Samson, so far as we know, never went to planet fitness to acquire his great strength and to deliver his people from the Philistines with one blow. But God strengthened Samson. 
There's not one word in scripture that he worked out with weights <laughs> and did stretches and yoga and Pilates. David was the least of eight brothers, but he was the one king of Israel. Solomon's wisdom was, wasn't the product of his intense study. It was answered prayer. Jonah, the reluctant prophet, was called in faith, but delivered by fish. He's the poster boy of irresistible grace, for even the great fish had no power to resist the call of his maker. God made that fish for one purpose, to deliver his prophet, so that his effectual call would remain irresistible. And what of Peter and John and James? It's almost like when he called them, leave your nets and follow me. It's almost like a spell came over them and they started going. These were guys, working men. They didn't see themselves as prophets and educated men and holy men. And they went off with the itinerant rabbi from Nazareth just because he called. I think he just walked by as they were mending their nets with old Zebedee and he said, follow me. And only the ones that were called heard him. Else they all would have come. And what about Judas? Aha, what about Judas? Well, John 6, 70 says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? God even chose him for his end. There it is. And not least of all, Lazarus. He became the trophy of the resurrection power of Christ. He didn't call himself out of the grave. He alone can call the dead to life. Christ alone. There were many dead in the tombs of Bethany that day, but only one was called to life. It's unthinkable to suggest that he might have resisted the call of his Savior. No, thank you, Lord. I prefer to remain buried and dead. It's impossible. God is giving you life. Only Jesus Christ can call the dead out of their tombs and the blind out of their darkness. And what of this apostle himself? What of Paul? His whole life is a portrait of repentance, metanoio, to change one's mind or purpose. But he didn't change it of himself. Saul's whole resume was printed by God. And so we read it from the words of Ananias. Remember, God went to Ananias, and what did Ananias say? Are you sure this is the guy? Because I've heard some bad things about him. I heard he persecutes us. And God said to him, no, go, for he's a chosen vessel of mine, and I'll show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. But don't worry, because all of them will work together for good, because he loves me, and so do you. And so when he got to Ananias, after God fixed Ananias' doctrine... (laughs) He says, Brother Saul, (laughs) this is the guy he just said, but that guy is a killer. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. See, he already knew the story. God got to him first, told him the story. Paul didn't tell Ananias the story. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you've got to be among the people that have the Holy Spirit. You do. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues. (laughs) That's a change. 
He preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. And all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? His fame was out there. But Paul, but Saul increased, Luke writes, all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He was already well studied in the Old Testament. He knew the prophecies about Christ. He knew the story of how he died. And then it dawned on him, when the light of Christ shone on him, how it all fit together. It doesn't say he argued it or he had made some good points. It says he proved it. Now, one contextual point as we get into our verse this morning. It seems to me that the natural reading of the verse is not that the second part is the answer to the first. Rather, it's an extension of it. Consider this. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It's an unnatural emphasis to say the second part is the answer to the first, else we'd have to conclude God brings the charge against his own elect. Now, either way you do it, the end comes out the same. It's only God who could bring a charge. But I don't think that's what he's saying. I think the power of the statement is that it should read like this. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect, since it is God who justifies? You see the power in that? I'm not alone in this view, but I, it seems to me it's not the answer. It's still the, it's still the, rhetor- the rhetorical question. The answer is not that God charges the same elect children that he chose for salvation, but that since he chose them, there's no one else who would dare to charge them. You see the power in that? Our doctrine is clear. We have spiritual unity with Christ. Christ is in God. We are in Christ. To charge the elect is to charge God with overstepping his authority. People do it all the time. Have you ever been charged? Has anyone said, you do that and you call yourself a Christian? You mean you who call yourself a Christian would vote for that guy? Have you ever had that said to you? I think we all have. Many have done that to me in my life. And even in the event that their objections to my choices and my actions are valid objections. Sometimes we sin, and there's always a worldly relative out there to remind you, you hypocrite. Friends, when someone says the church is full of hypocrites, don't start crying and and, uh, objecting and defending yourself. Oh, no, it's awful. Just say, you know, you're right, and I'm the chief hypocrite. And then it goes away. We've all claimed things that we could. Look at Peter. Very braggadocious at times. And then he denied him, right? One of the scenarios of the New Testament that ought to give us pause to consider the power of election is that essentially, with some minor differences, Judas and Peter treated Christ the same. Did you ever think of that? Judas gave him a kiss. (laughs) Peter said, I do not know the man, right? Not all that different. Even in the event that people's objections 
to your choices and your actions are indeed valid objections. Their charge against you will have no standing in the courts of heaven, for the judge has already acquitted me of any crime of wrongdoing. No double jeopardy in heaven. <laughs> You're acquitted. It's done. We are in Christ, the blessed doctrine of our union with Christ. We are the branches of the same vine as Christ. We are the stones in the same edifice that Christ builds. We are the fruit of the same blessed tree. We are the bride. He is the husband. He is the head. We are the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are joined to Christ, and there is no disjoining it. The two have become one. Jesus drove home the doctrine of our union with Christ in his famous high, famous high priestly prayer in John 17, where he's praying to God and he says, I have forgiven, or rather, I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. And they have known surely that I came forth from you, and they have believed that you sent me. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And the glory you gave me, I give them. That they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Well, he drove that home. The union is the very reason why the risen Christ challenged Saul on the road. Remember this? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus was already dead, and in Paul's opinion, or Saul of Tarsus's opinion at the time, still dead. He wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the church. But we are inextricably bound with Christ. And Christ takes it personally when someone brings a charge against his elect. So he said to Paul, why are you persecuting me? He could just easily have said, who are you to bring a charge against God's elect since it is God who justifies? Who are you to bind those I have unbound? Who are you to charge those that I have acquitted? Who are you to imprison those that I have set free? So you are the elect of God. Get used to your, na to your name. Like most things in the kingdom of God, you didn't name yourself. God did. You're the elect sons and daughters of God, and you are under his legal protection. Who shall bring a charge, friends? That's a legal challenge. So the apostle offers us a little bit of courtroom drama. Who shall bring a charge as though we're before the bench of the judge? Who will bring a charge? Speak now or forever hold your peace sort of thing, right? Well, let's go with the courtroom idea. When we were under the law, every legal challenge against us had to be made in district court. That's the lesser court in Massachusetts, district court, right? It was a civil issue. It had to be litigated in the courts of men because men were the stewards of the law. It was men who came together to declare verdicts. It was human judges who said, stone the heretic or crucify the traitor. For a man to be judged in a lesser court, he had to be a citizen of a lesser kingdom. The district courts of men could, not, could only try earthly cases 
They can only be concerned with worldly departures from the law. But in my illustration, the elect, for the elect, there's no authority to charge them in the courts of men. The district courts have no authority to judge the citizens of a heavenly country. They're judged in superior court. That's the one on Belmont Street. These are prosecuted by a superior judge. Doesn't matter what men say or what they charge you of. They have no jurisdiction over you anymore. The law of Moses has no jurisdiction over you anymore. You are delivered from the curse of the law. We are not under law, but under grace. And grace is the verdict of the superior judge. He's already given his verdict. So who shall bring a charge against God's elect? No district judge, for sure. Why? Because the superior judge has already offered his verdict, and it is this. The accused are innocent of all charges. They're sentenced to life everlasting in the fields and pastures of my heavenly kingdom. Set them free on time served in a sin-cursed world. His sentence has been served by his Redeemer. The sin debt is paid. And the closing statement of our advocate is this. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Hallelujah. Having offered his rhetorical question, Paul makes a few more rhetorical inquiries. And he does so just to make sure we're paying attention. Just to make certain that we're absorbing the complete power and extent of God's gift. And so he goes on and he asks, who is he who condemns? Since it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who's even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us. In other words, who is he who, is he who condemns where Christ has quitted? Christ has paid the debt. I'll make the same textual point here as I did in the previous. Who is he who condemns since it's Christ who died? The answer is no one. The answer is that what the Lord said to Peter, what God has cleansed you must not call common. Remember that from Acts 10? Doesn't matter if they accuse you. Doesn't matter. Verses 35 through 37 to tie it all up with a beautiful eternal bow. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Well, he gives some examples of those things that we'll try. Shall tribulation or distress? Oh, I'm in distress. I'm separated from the love of Christ. No, you're in distress, but you're not separated from the love of Christ. It might not dispel all the distress, but the distress can't dispel the fact that you're elect. What about persecution? It's tough, but it doesn't change the verdict. What about famine? Or nakedness, or peril, or sword? By sword, he means death. (laughs) As it is written, for your sake we're killed all day long. We're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why? We're the elect. Father, in Jesus' name, we praise you. For all that you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit to keep us forever in the palm of your hand. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name.
Amen.